In this episode, we dive into how and why Bitcoin's blockchain is a technology for robust macro history. In other words, how the technology itself works and why that would be useful for us to record history. We cover how we can use blockchains to log crucial metadata like who did something, who received something, what happened, and when did it happen, how and why blockchain technology makes it very difficult to falsify information that is logged to it, especially when using the proof-of-work consensus mechanism of the Bitcoin blockchain, how digital signatures work and how we can confirm that the information we digitally sign has actually been signed by us, why digital signatures are almost impossible to forge and how they are cryptographically tied to one's identity, private and public keys and how they work, why they're better than sending a sealed letter with a written signature, how this technology could tie an individual's identity to an individual action and therefore keep presidents, judges, and military leaders accountable, how that affects the line between national security and individual privacy uh, or government privacy, how cryptographic hash functions make it difficult to corrupt the logs of what someone did, how timestamps on the blockchain make it difficult to corrupt the logs of when something happened, the potential risks and failures of relying on blockchain data as truth, including quantum decryption, undiscovered bugs in the code, or a possible 51% attack from China or other powerful and nefarious actors. And we covered so much in both technical and layman terms just for you. Since we're just starting out and could really use your support, if you like this episode, please smush that like button into a delicious pancake, share this episode, comment, sign up for our newsletter, and retweet or share our episodes to at Balaji, that's B-A-L-A-J-I, so we can get his attention and get him on the podcast. I promise we'll make it all worth it for you. Now, please enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Network State Podcast. Today we are going to be covering Bitcoin's blockchain is a technology for robust macro history. So what does that mean in other words? We can potentially be using the Bitcoin's blockchain to record our macro history, which we covered in the previous episode, which is basically just our human history. Um, and this episode is going to be explaining uh, how that technology can be used to record um, all of that history, and then eventually how that can be applied to actually record non-Bitcoin events, and then how that can be used to record our society's history, and concluding with how crypto history can actually be, or crypto ver cryptographically verified history can be our crypto history, meaning it's um, immutable. Well, okay. Yeah. How do you feel about this episode? It sounds scary, but based on if, if anybody's been following us from the beginning in our journey, I find that once we get into it, it actually, we, we do a great job unpacking it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Humble brag. Okay. So um, starting off with, there are some catches to the concept of digital macro history, uh, though silos, bots, sensors, and fakes. Um, 
uh, as we'll show, Bitcoin and its generalizations provide a powerful way to solve these issues. First, let's understand the problems of silos, bots, sensors, and fakes. The macro historical log is largely siloed across different corporate servers on the premises of Twitter and Facebook and Google. The posts are typically not digitally signed or cryptographically timestamped. So much of the content is or could be from bots rather than humans. Inconvenient digital history can be deleted by putting sufficient pressure on centralized social media companies or academic publishers, censoring true information in the name of taking down disinformation. As we've already seen, uh, and the advent of AI allows uh, highly realistic fakes of the past and present to be generated. If we're not careful, we could drown in fake data. So how could someone in the future or even the present know if a particular event they didn't directly observe was real? The Bitcoin blockchain gives one answer. It is the most rigorous form of history yet known to man, a history that is technically and economically resistant to revision. Thanks to a combination of cryptographic primitives and financial incentives, it is very challenging to falsify the who, what, and when of transactions when uh, written to the Bitcoin blockchain. So we're going to get into um, each of those terms. But yeah, so uh, who initiated this transfer? What amount of Bitcoin did they send? What metadata did they attach to the transaction? And when did they send it? That information is recorded in the blockchain and sufficient to give a bare bones history of the entire Bitcoin economy since 2009. If you sum up that entire history to the present day, you also get the values of how much BTC is held by each address. It's an immediatist model of history where the past is not even past, it's with us at every second. In a little more detail, why is the Bitcoin blockchain so resistant to the rewriting of history? To falsify the who of a single transaction, you'd need to fake a digital signature. So this is the first term we need to understand and we'll dive into here. So Raf, you know, uh, please ask clarifying questions as needed as we go through this. Um, because it's gonna get it's gonna get technical, it's gonna get bumpy. I uh, understood everything up until then, but <laughs> as usual. No, um, but maybe before we jump into these uh, terms, maybe we can just talk about, I mean, yeah, how, how would we summarize what we've just said? Because it's, I mean, for me, it's blown through a lot of really interesting things, which, yeah. um, which again, I'm like, oh yeah, no, you know, we're in the space, we're interested in, in building network states. So we're familiar with some of this stuff. And it rings true. It rings true to me, which is why I, for me, I wasn't flagging anything up until now. It's true now it's getting a little bit more granular, but I guess what would be interesting is, is there a summary that we can talk about just this before we get too much into the technical? And then why is it so interesting? Like why, why is it that we've made this leap from, here's what the problem is, whoa, here's this example that we have now technologically, and why is that a good use case to solve that problem? I think that if, if we can get that straight, then I think we can go into how that works much um, much deeper and much more effectively. So, okay, that's so... My question to you, Adrian. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, On the spot. Yeah, to summarize, I think, um, you know, he's going to dive into this and to the rest of this chapter and explain how each step works. But in this mm -hmm. current step, right, um, and what we just read um, was the summary of how um, we could use 
Bitcoin's existing blockchain, um, which is so far the best form of recorded history that we have, um, immutable recorded history that we have, um, to start adding these non-Bitcoin transaction events to then start recording uh, historical societal events to then standardize that model and use that moving forward to record all of history. And the reason we want that, like the problem that that solves is. So the, I think the problem that that solves is that we currently have a system in which, um, as we've seen in previous episodes, um, definitely check those out is history is um, twisting and corrupted and um, very difficult for people to verify um, in a consensus type way, meaning where everybody agrees on what happened, when and what, and potentially even why. Um, and so having that consensus moving forward would make a massive impact on the ways that different countries uh, hold each other accountable and can enforce the um, sanctions or um, consequences that a certain country will go through if they breach certain you know human international human rights. So for example, um, there are UN definitions for what is apartheid um, or what is um, occupation, right? And those are quantifiable definitions. And so if we can track those things and those things are immutably shown to the rest of the world, then it's just a question of, okay, are we really going to enforce on an international level these definitions when they've been breached or not, right? And maybe that, that's a whole other discussion, but at least there's a consensus of this has happened in a quantifiable way and it is recorded and everybody is aware and nobody can change that. Now let's have a conversation about it rather than we're all coming to this with a different perspective, our own different agendas. We're all trying to change and manipulate everybody else's perspective to benefit our own as much as possible and kind of be in that game theory. Um, mm. At least here, there's there's some more consensus. Mm -hmm. So I guess the, the, the what I'm hearing is there are certain issues today that are so complex uh, and so overwhelming and like global probably that there's a kind of difficulty in making progress. And part of that is because there's lack of transparency in terms of information and really if we if we had the right interests at heart then um we would all be on board with a little bit more transparency so that we could push forward some actual decisions rather than let these things sort of fester um and uh, allow ourselves to be distracted from what we actually want I think there's still this question of what's the motivation behind all of this and like are, are we making sure that we're aligned with the same vision um like the same goals and and I think that's one of the points we've said in our earlier 
um, one of our first uh, uh, episodes, which is that it, it really is dependent on what the mission or the motivation that you're assigning to your network state. Because you know when you start making decisions on what you're tracking and why you're tracking it, but um, in general, we have this technology that should enable us today to start tracking things. That if if we have them, then there's no excuses basically, and that's what we want to push states into. And then I guess on a on a low, on a granular level, individuals, and especially when it's individuals making decisions for states, hence diplomacy. Yes, that's right. Cool. Yeah. Like we, we have a book, right? We have a guidebook, uh, a verifiable guidebook um, yeah. to look at. Cool, fun. So yeah, let's see how this all works. Um, it, it feels like, yeah, the, the Bitcoin use case, that's, it, it, the, it's such a great entry point for this because yeah, we're gonna become familiar with all of these components to a new technology where there actually are many of our use cases and, and the idea of using this just for history um, is one of the more forward-thinking ones. Um, so if you understand that, then you'll understand a lot of what's going on with this layer of technology that's bringing us into the, uh, I guess, metaverse is the term we've all agreed upon. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. I'd like to uh, see the, uh, I'd like to see the history of that one. <laughs> yeah, same. Um, but starting off with explaining this technology, we have to go through what is a digital signature. So, this is the link um, that he links out to, and I've just you know forwarded to this image because it kind of explains it in a nutshell. But I'm also going to give it um, uh, my explanation, you know, that I've taken from this article and then kind of simplified. So, um, if so at any point we need Coinbase. some clarification, you know, I want you to to interrupt and and um, yeah. and bring it out. Well, I think. I think Coinbase and Adrian are are a reliable source for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know about that. Um, but here we go. So just as written signatures tie a person to a particular document, digital signatures cryptographically link an identity to a message. So digital signatures are almost impossible to forge because they are based on number theory and what is called public key cryptography. Um, users own a public key and a private key, which form a pair. So public key cryptography uses encryption to guarantee security and protect sensitive key information. The public key represents the owner's identity and the private key is secret, allowing them to prove that they own the public key. Sorry, so can, you say, repeat, can you repeat yeah. just that last bit? The public key represents the owner's what? Identity. Okay. Online, key, right? So right. people, anybody can see anybody else's public key, and the private their key, private key, is is unique to them, and only right. they know it. They should not share that online ever. That would be a bad idea because that's giving anybody else access to their quote unquote vault. Let's say, right? So if you're trying what? to protect your vault, you have a public key that people can see. That's like your vault's address. Right? Mm -hmm. So you want to send something into somebody else's vault, you can see their address, their public mm -hmm. key, and send it. But in order for them to open up that vault, they need their private key. And so then they can open up the vault and either see the message that you sent them or the cache that you sent them or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And the relationship between the private and the public key, that interaction happens just... Um it's it's integrated into the technology itself it's not something that you're um 
activating per se like you you wouldn't see that interaction anywhere basically does that make sense or can you say that one again just uh what like what's the what's the relationship between well, i guess what's interesting here is that there's a relationship between the public key and the private key and it's and it's something that's like built into the system it's not something yes. that like oh hey look i need to look up my private key and then activate the public key no it happens uh this is what we mean by cryptographically basically that that link is is like built into the system right. right exactly so in this graphic we can see right the message is hello alice um and so reading uh reading on right let's say that alice wants to send an encrypted message to bob anyone can see bob's public key so alex can use bob's public key when sending him an encrypted message observers can see or intercept the encrypted message but they can't decrypt it without bob's private key which only he knows so alice can ensure nobody but bob can see the messages unless they have his private key. For digital signatures, the operation is reversed. Instead of using Bob's public key first, Alice uses her own private key in the signing algorithm to link her signature to her message and her public key. Mm. No one can derive Alice's private key or forge a valid signature for her using only her signature and public key. They would also need her private key. But anyone who knows Alice's public key can still easily verify that the message was signed by her private key. So there are easy ways to digitally sign transactions in order to confirm them and ensure the identity of the signer to the receiver. So let's break that part down before moving forward. You can sign something, uh, a message, for example, um, by using your private key at the start of the process, right? So you write a message, you use your private key, that puts your unique signature um, on that message. And then you can send that to somebody else's public key um, and they can see that you are the one who signed it. And it's only you because it was signed using your private key which is linked to your public key, right? So if they're receiving a message from you, they're seeing, okay, this came from Alice's public key, let's say. Um, the only way for that message to have Alice's signature means that she signed it using her private key. Therefore, it is a digital signature. Let's use the example of like a normal letter, right? Um, in the old days, we would have these envelopes and we would seal it with a unique seal that was on a ring or something, right? Or stamp. <laughs> and that would show, okay, this is signed by um, that individual family. Now, mm -hmm. the trouble with that is anybody can forge that ring or that stamp and then they can just make the same seal and then, you know, send a letter. And so they can act as if they're that person, right? This is a much more advanced form of that where imagine that the stamp is completely unique to you. Only you know what that looks like um, and nobody else does. And so um, mm -hmm. when you stamp your envelope with your private key, um, it's very clear that that was signed by you and you alone. Um, and then when you send it, the receiver can also see and know that that was signed by you and you alone. Mm -hmm. So that's what makes it um, a digital signature 
um, which is more robust than what we've had in the past in the traditional letter sending sense. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean, I think it's a good breakdown. It, it feels familiar to me, and that might be because I've been in and around this for a while now. Uh, so I hope people, if you do have questions specifically on this, but I, I love the, yeah, I love the, the little graphic of like public to private. And I think we we get a very clear idea of if there is um like, what's the role of the public key? What's the role of the private key? How is that a game changer? Um, and in any case, all of those are interesting because what is the foundation of this? We're, we're it's resulting in in what we mean in what we need which is actually a, dig, a digital signature so something which prompts um like a verifiable um moment or stamp or whatever it is right basically. and it's and it's like right to yeah to extrapolate that um the ability to be able to tie an, an individual's identity to an individual action that is recorded on a blockchain yeah. is yeah. where these signatures um, become really important, especially yeah. when let's talk about like declassified information from a government, right? When yeah. there's a top-down uh, hierarchy and the person in power makes an order and sends that out to officers to execute and they sign it, right? Um, currently this is all done in like some paper trail or some, you know, government security system that the public doesn't have access to. And so we don't really have a way of verifying unless the government wants us to see those things or they get leaked. Um, mm -hmm. but in this case, if governments were forced or like held accountable by their public to record all of their actions on a blockchain. And in order to pass an order through, they have to digitally sign that order. We know, yeah. unless the president shared his private key with some other person, um, that that president is responsible for having signed that order and put it into effect. So it's also holding individuals accountable um, by their digital signatures. That's a really cool use case that I, haven't heard of yet and yet it's been a very hot topic obviously in terms of uh classified documentation like being found in x and current executives uh <laughs> executive branch uh, personnel's personal homes or personal um property and uh there is this um uh, there's this book that just came out or i think that's coming out next week um by this professor um I believe in Columbia, who's Columbia University, whose um, whole thing has been about like mapping the volume of uh, volume and pattern of uh, classified documents uh, over the last century. Because mm. um, I think that it started uh, FDR era. Um, and uh, basically the, the point is today, it's something like 10, what is it? 10 million people have like clearance for uh classified documents in the u.s hmm. i don't know <laughs> yeah. an insanely large amount yeah yeah um and then but yes and then and then we're seeing like then these documents like pop up in places where it's like whoa, whoa we know who those people are you know like if the president or the ex-president has these documents and you're like well wait you're telling us they're not supposed to have them but then 10 million other people could have seen them anyway 
Um, and there's this big question about like, well, very early on in the development of this classified information system, the volume of paper that was like uh, classified as classified, like you need some kind of clearance for, quickly mm -hmm. got out of hand. His premise is that if you if you collected all of the classified information that was, um, uh, or the, all the spending that's uh, the collective US government spending on classifying information, yeah. it would actually result a, as a larger budget than the US military. <laughs> Oh my God! Or like, or like the state, <laughs> or the state department, but something in, like it's the largest department, basically. Yeah. Oh man. Um. And so suddenly you're like, wait, guys, have you tried maybe I don't know putting this on the blockchain? Uh. Wow. Yeah. That that could be huge. And I I haven't seen a discussion around that. Um. I need to see what the follow up is. Obviously, the book's not out yet, but it's been very. It, I mean, it's not been very much part of the news cycle, but it has been picked up in some, like more mainstream parts. It'd be really interesting if those two worlds collide. It sounds like the revolution that the government would need. It also sounds like exactly the kind of thing that the government would never do. <laughs> yeah. So, but that's really interesting. That classified information um, or accessibility of information should be run on a blockchain. That that should be inbuilt infrastructure for network states makes a lot of sense. At least, like if we're going to start something new, that that should be built in there. And that your digital signature is the key to uh, classifying and then accessing that kind of information. I think that's really cool. Yeah. And it does raise the questions, you know, like where is the line between national security and government privacy? Yeah. Um, and I think that's the whole point is to just bring up that conversation in a way where everybody can actually talk about it and mm -hmm. share their opinion on it rather than it be enforced. Now, again, like, um, I don't think that it's safe, uh, especially for um, citizens and for operatives that are currently covert and doing things to have their identity um, shared. So that's really important. But um, there are other ways to uh, hold a president accountable after the fact, right? At least there are documents that have not been destroyed or have not been changed. Um, and there's still something to keep the truth there um, and for it to exist, regardless of whether or not a president doesn't want to look bad. Hmm. Um, I, I don't know if this was just me, but I did lose you for the last uh, five seconds. Oh, okay. Where did I leave um, off? But but that might have been just me. So something about holding accountable the president. But I yeah. So I like where uh, where it started and I like where it ended. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's basically just saying that if we have these records um, that are logged in this immutable way, uh, there is a possibility to have both national security and protecting you know, individual operatives that are anonymous uh, internationally or whatever in some dangerous situation, while also still holding presidents or leaders or cabinets or whatever accountable for their actions, either after the fact or solely displaying information that is relevant to their actions and not disclosing the other information. Um, so yeah, that's still a possibility. Um, which is much more robust than the current system where if a president 
wants to destroy documents, you know, there are some agencies and some organizations that are there to hold that president accountable, but it's not the same as having this on a, on a cryptographically verifiable blockchain. Okay. Now, all that said, uh, it is inevitable that digital sig signature schemes will eventually be replaced by newer and better schemes, and new cryptographic systems rarely achieve widespread implementation when initially proposed, which is why we need an informal trial period to test security and prove any assumptions before a new scheme is widely adopted by the general public. So these are not foolproof systems that will forever work and um, have no errors. This is just a new technology that as time goes on, will adapt and newer versions will come out. And you know, there's always gonna be this battle between um, what is working currently and how can we break it? And how do we fix that? And what do we do it the next time, right? I'm still um, pretty convinced by clay tablets. I, I don't, I don't know yeah. about this whole paper thing. Yeah, honestly, clay, clay tablets were the OG. And mm -hmm. um, actually, no, maybe even papyrus. I actually wonder uh, what came first. No, clay tablets for sure. Come on. But yeah, <laughs> so those those were, were definitely more cool. Okay, anyway, so going back to having covered what somebody would need to do to falsify the who, right? That's needing to fake a digital signature. To falsify the what, you'd need to break a hash function. So again, uh, this Sounds is the link illegal. that Bology links out to. <laughs> yeah, this is uh, very technical as well, um, but I'm going to give my, my best shot here. So cryptographic hash functions are designed in a way that cannot be reversed back. So they are used widely to encode an input of data of some kind. Uh, without revealing it. For example, encoding a private key to a blockchain address without revealing the key, right? So how, do, how, does, um, how do private keys work through these hash functions where you can have an input and encode it um, to a blockchain without revealing it? That's basically what that means in, in the simplest terms possible. And I'm probably grossly uh, misrepresenting that, but I'm trying to keep it in layman's terms. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think this whole, when you, just when it's introduced like that, it just, it makes it sound so cool. I, I don't know about, I'm, I, I don't know if people get excited about this kind of stuff like we do, but <laughs> I, I mean, this was like, this was an innovation, you know, like this was, this is something that like before we didn't have, then we had, and now this is like a, it's part of the formula for us to make something completely new. Um, and it's about being able to send out this kind of function, I guess, um, which uh, we like, this is what it rests upon. Like before that, we didn't have that possibility technologically. And I think it's just so cool. <laughs> Yeah. So it it's it's basically like we're following just more advanced ways of doing the things that we've been doing, but mm. better and safer and more verifiable and transparent than ever before. It doesn't mean that it's revolutionary and this will be the end all be all forever. It just means we're improving and mm. that improvement is leading to better results 
um, or outcomes in the kinds of moral and economic and political issues that we see today. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's to falsify the what, um, right? To break that hash function, which again, these are designed to um, not be breakable, um, but again, anything can happen. Um, and then to falsify the when, you need to corrupt a timestamp. So a timestamp is basically just a, a, reco a, a recording of when a block was added to a blockchain. So um, <laughs> I'm going to, again, try to explain this in a way that um, makes this simple, but this is probably the most complicated one. So each block within the blockchain is identified by a hash generated using the SHA-256 or SHA-256 cryptographic hash algorithm on the header of the block. So let's just say like, imagine the block has like a little piece of code or just a, a line that um, has this hash. And yeah. that tells us um, a piece of information. Yeah, so just so just to be just on that point here, yeah. the so we just because we're building off of previous definitions, I think it's good to repeat again. Yeah. Um, just here in this case, what we're saying is there's a there's going to be this information, which has already been thanks to the hash in, in this case has already been translated into another type of information, which gives it this like veneer or element of security, um, because it has already been like uh, encoded basically. Right. So right. it's like it has happened hmm. and it has been logged, and there is something there that we can point to and say, this happened. Which means something then, to the blockchain, but is uh it has been already basically turned into or encrypted into something that uh, like for us all intents and purposes is actually already secure, basically. Right. So so how does that get secure? Why does that why is that secure? This is the next piece. So each block also references a previous block known as the parent block, right? Through what's called the previous block hash. That's not important field in the block header, okay? So in other words, each block contains the hash of its parent inside its own header. Another way of putting that is each block has information in it that um, links it to the block before it which is called mm -hmm. the parent block, okay? Um, the sequence of hashes linking each block to its parent creates a chain going back all the way to the first block ever created known as the Genesis block, right? So the first block ever, that's the Genesis block. Every block after that is a child block of that Genesis block. Um, and then each one before each block is a parent of that block. <laughs> so that makes... the parent-child uh, wording is a little bit um, helpful uh, if you just think of like Genesis as like the first ever parent. It's the Adam and Eve of blocks. <laughs> right, exactly. The Adam and Eve of blocks. Okay, so although a block has just one parent, it can temporarily have multiple children. And so each of the children refers to the same block as its parent and contains the same parent hash in the previous block hash field, right? So they still have that same, let's say, digital signature, even though it's not it, but just to um, simplify things that we just went over, 
if each child block has the same signature of the parent block, they're all pointing to the same parent block, right? Um, temporarily. Um, and so multiple children arise during a blockchain fork, a temporary situation that occurs when different blocks are discovered almost simultaneously by different miners. Um, see blockchain forks for more information. We're not going to explain what miners are for now. We'll get into that. Um, but just picture that blocks can have multiple children temporarily, meaning multiple blocks right after them temporarily. <clears throat> and so um, uh, eventually only one child block becomes part of the blockchain and the fork mm -hmm. is resolved. Even though a block may have more than one child, each block can only have one parent. This is because a block has one single previous block hash field referencing its single parent. So the previous block hash field is inside the block header and thereby affects the current blocks hash. Again, I hate the way that they describe these with like all the technical fields. So the simpler way of saying that is there is a field in each block um, inside the blocks header. So just a part of information in that block um, to reference the previous block, which is its parent block. Um, <clears throat> the child's own identity changes if the parent's identity changes. So when the parent is modified in any way, the parent's hash changes. The parent's changed hash necessitates a change in the previous block hash pointer of the child, which is basically just saying that the parent, if the parent changes, the child has to change. Um, then in, this in turn causes the child's hash to change, which requires a change in the pointer of the grandchild, which in turn changes the grandchild and so on. So affecting a change in the parent, changes the child, changes the grandchild, changes every block subsequent uh, all the way until the present day block, basically. Okay. This cascade effect ensures that once a block has many generations following it, it cannot be changed without forcing a recalculation of all subsequent blocks. And because such a recalculation would require enormous computation, the existence of a long chain of blocks makes the blockchain's deep history immutable, which is a key feature of Bitcoin's security. So the reason we say that it's immutable is because if a change were to happen in a previous block, then it would have to change every other block that came after it. And that takes an enormous amount of computation, which most people would not be able to do. There are some ways that that can happen. It was called like a 51% attack, but whatever, we'll get into that in some other uh, time later. Um, but it would be very, very difficult to, to, to accomplish that. Um, and so we can see that if these blocks uh, have not been changed, uh, that that is a reliable form of history. Okay. So <laughs> that's, that's um, just for the when. 
Okay, so if you wanted to falsify the when something happened, you'd need to corrupt that timestamp. And you'd need to do this while somehow not breaking all the other records cryptographically connected to that transaction through the mechanism of composed block headers, right? So you need to falsify the who through digital signatures, the what through breaking a hash function, and the when through timestamps and changing all the block headers of all of the blocks, okay? That's what makes it very, very difficult. Um, some call the Bitcoin blockchain a time chain because unlike many other blockchains, it's proof of work mechanism and difficulty adjustment ensure a statistically regular time interval between blocks crucial to its function as a digital history. And I'm gonna read this next paragraph and then break down those terms because this is where Biology recognizes that these concepts and some of what follows is technical. Our whirlwind tour may provoke either familiar head nodding or confused head scratching. If you want more detail, we've linked definitions of each term, but fully explaining them beyond, uh, or, or fully explaining them is beyond the scope of this work, except for us. That's why we're here trying to do it for you. Um, and he links out to the truth machine for a popular treatment and Dan Bonet's crypto cryptography course for a technical detail if anyone wants to dive even further. Okay, so going back to why Bitcoin should be called a time chain, actually, so what this links out to explains uh, briefly that originally when Satoshi Nakamoto, the creator of Bitcoin, um, who is actually anonymous, that's just an alias, um, <clears throat> released these initial papers, he wanted that technology to be referred to as time chain, not blockchain. Um, but we and marketing and all these other investors and uh, startups uh, picked up the term blockchain to really describe what he wanted Bitcoin to be called a time chain. And that's because it's actually this recording of uh, temporal events, um, which is the, the fascinating or really valuable part of it as well. Um, okay, so now to explain proof of work. So <clears throat> there are to many fair, different... The hmm? time chain does sound like it should be in a like Final Fantasy game. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Um, okay, so... The time chain. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think you know, it, it's, it's very similar to um, Loki, the show from Marvel um, that plays with having a single timeline and branching off these different timelines and back mm -hmm. to like multi-verses. Um, yeah. or like multiverse theory, this is kind of like how that technology uh, addresses these kinds of problems so that when there is a break from that chain, they're repairing that fork by finding consensus. And so the consensus is what these proof of work mechanisms do. There are also other mechanisms that are trying to find consensus. That's why they're called consensus mechanisms. Um, but Bitcoin's blockchain uses this proof of work mechanism instead of others like proof of stake or private. Um, and so we're gonna dive into why the proof of work consensus mechanism is uh, great for recording history. So uh, proof of work also goes by POW, um, is among the most widely utilized methods in blockchain and was popularized first by Bitcoin. Uh, the defining components of POW systems are miners, 
and the electricity they expend to make the calculations that verify Bitcoin, BTC, transactions. Miners operate computer hardware to run network nodes that employ computational power to algorithmically solve mathematical puzzles called proofs of work. So in other words, and as a fun exercise, I asked ChatGPT to explain proof of work blockchains to a 13-year-old. And here's what it came up with. 13, I want a five-year-old. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Five-year-old would be even better, right? Explain to me like I'm five. That's that was a good that was a good Reddit. So here's ChatGPT's version. POW is a way that the computers in the network make sure that the transactions are valid and the same Bitcoin isn't being spent twice. Think of it like a math puzzle that the computers have to solve. The first computer to solve the puzzle gets to add a block of new transactions to the blockchain. And as a reward, it gets some newly created Bitcoins. The math puzzle is designed to be difficult to solve, but easy to verify once it's solved. This makes sure that the co computers on the network have to put in a lot of effort to add new blocks to the blockchain, but it's quick and easy for the rest of the networks to check that the puzzle has been solved correctly. This helps keep the network secure and ensures that no one can cheat by adding false transactions. By making it difficult and expensive to add new blocks, the network can make sure that it is trustworthy. So first, let's clarify that. Raf, any, any clarifying questions before yes. we dive can into it? Yeah, explain said, yeah. like I'm eight. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. That's, no, that's... I, I think it, basically we're asking computers to use a lot of energy to solve these mass problems, which I guess is what like blockchain, Bitcoin, the, the specifically the Bitcoin blockchain or time chain. Um <laughs> I'm an originalist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um the, specifically what that chain is asking for to, I guess, um, create more of itself. And then the first computer to do that gets a gold star, which is worth a bunch of money. And uh, to check the work, actually, I, I, I'd be curious actually what it means that they're, what is it that they're actually verifying and how, you, how they do that? I think that's really kind of cool. That would be my next question. But I understand the concept of like, okay, once you hand in your like homework, then for the teacher, they actually that somehow has revealed the like um what is it the like teacher's copy with the solution or right. or you can yes. basically based off the answer you can very easily plug it back in and be like ah yes true false you know yeah i assume that's so, it, that's kind of that system right here. so i actually find that the 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 words make more sense when we think about this where bitcoin is gold in the real world right so just like with gold we have miners that are mining for gold because gold is valuable. They have to put in work to get that gold. And once they have the gold, they can sell it to make money, right? So we can use that same analogy here for Bitcoin because they use the same terminology. So these miners are using computers to solve math problems instead of digging in a cave to get actual gold. Right. But it's the same thing. Um, okay. So these miners operate. They're both terrible for the environment. 
<laughs> Just to add another parallel here. Um, okay, so yeah, miners operate computer hardware to run network nodes, those are just computers, that employ computational power to algorithmically solve these mathematical puzzles called proofs of work. Expression. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just trying to keep it simple, right? So computers, computers solve these math problems, that gets them this reward. Nice. The miner who solves the puzzle first confirms the most recent block of transactions on the blockchain. Right? As we just uh, talked about, if they solve the puzzle, they um, are broadcasting that new block to all other nodes, which in turn, so all other computers, which in turn confirm its accuracy and add that block to their copy of the blockchain. And that builds a verifiable record of data for the whole network, right? So once one miner, one computer uh, solves the math problem, they get Bitcoin, uh, well, they, they add a block to the blockchain and mm -hmm. the reward for them solving that problem first is they get some Bitcoin. Um, when they add that block to the blockchain, that is broadcasted to all the other computers on the network, which are called nodes, and those then verify that that block was executed correctly, and then they make a copy of the new blockchain, so every single block, again, um, so that each individual node, each individual computer has a copy so if you corrupt one individual node's copy, it doesn't really matter because the majority of the other nodes have uh, another copy that is the same. And this is where like a 51% attack um, gets its name because if theoretically there was a hacker or an organization or whatever that was able to corrupt more than 51% of the copies of the blockchain, now it's a new blockchain because it really depends on um, what the majority of nodes yeah, have as the verifiable uh, version of the truth. So as long as 51%, which is not actually that, it's really more like you know, um, 50.0000, you know, ad infinitum 1%, um, so some majority has, then um, there is a version of the truth that the majority agrees with and verifies. If that changes, then everything changes. Mm -hmm. But it, the, the idea is that it would be extremely difficult to perform a 51% attack. Um, mm -hmm. And we do like talk about this later in the chapter, um, mm -hmm. but it's very difficult. And so very few actors, if any, would be able to actually pull it off. I think it would make a lot of sense if uh, Studio Ghibli like made an animation of trying to explain this. <laughs> and I'm imagining the little soot thingies from Spirited Away, yeah. like carrying over a block and being like, I got it. <laughs> and everybody <laughs> yeah. like, he's the one, he got, he's the one who got it. Okay, let's move that's, let's, that's all right, next person, let's go. <laughs> I think actually like, you know, eventually we'll be able to use this generative AI to even just create like these animations from scratch. So that'd be super mm -hmm. cool. Okay, um, so, uh, the, the verification process represents consensus. Only once this data is confirmed can a new block be added to the network. 
Miners receive newly minted cryptocurrency, the block reward. In the case of Bitcoin, they receive BTC for being the first to validate a new block of data and add it to the POW blockchain. Okay, proof of work blockchains aim to produce blocks at consistent intervals. Bitcoin, for example, generates one block about every 10 minutes. POW networks are limited in terms of their speed and scale because the process for proving work is so energy intensive. Moreover, POW networks are coded to be more or less difficult relative to the amount of computational power on the network. You may think of computational power as simply competition. Mm -hmm. More computational power equals more competition, which equals harder proofs of work. But despite their limitations of speed and scalability, POW blockchains have historically provided better security while maintaining meaningful decentralization. Because POW systems are distributed, it is extremely expensive for a malicious actor to take over the blockchain by controlling the majority of computing power on the network. The hardware, electricity, and computational costs are typically too high to surmount. Again, this is possible. Cool but it's yeah. very difficult. Yeah. Okay. It, it's interesting. It's basically saying the infrastructure is so uh, like heavy, I guess, that you'd, you'd basically it would undermine the purpose of the system by you trying to take it over. Because if you're taking it over, suddenly you're devaluing the work that it's doing, which is essentially decentralized security system. And if you suddenly centralize that, well, then nobody's interested in the value of that timestamp because you've just corrupted one of its core functionalities, which um, yes. which I guess is cool. That's like a nice disincentive. Obviously, if there's really important stuff that's being uh, run off, run based off of what you're doing on that chain, then yeah, suddenly that becomes kind of uh, difficult. Yeah, you, you want to be more aware of those risks, basically. Yeah. So... Now to bring it all together and, and kind of wrap a bow around the technical side here. Uh, nevertheless, here's the point for even a non-technical reader. The Bitcoin blockchain gives a history that's hard to falsify. Unless there's an advance in quantum computing, a breakthrough in pure math, a heretofore unseen bug in the code, or a highly expensive 51% attack that probably only China could muster, it we is essentially infeasible to rewrite the history of the Bitcoin blockchain. So it is important to recognize that um, these are real existential threats to this as a solution. Okay, so if there are advances in quantum computing that could basically make cryptography not even matter because they could just crack it very easily, or there is a breakthrough in pure math that we just haven't thought of, or there is a bug in the code of the Bitcoin blockchain that we just haven't found yet, um, or there is this 51% attack that's produced by a very powerful entity like China or anything else. Um, these things can still happen, uh, but it is essentially infeasible to rewrite the history of the Bitcoin blockchain. And here's why that's important as well, or anything written to, uh, or, or anything written to it. And even if such an event does happen, it wouldn't be in an instantaneous burning of Bitcoin's library of Alexandria, which is just you know, a, a metaphor for all of its records. 
the hash function could be replaced with a quantum safe version or another chain robust uh, to set attack could take Bitcoin's place and back up the ledger of all historical Bitcoin transactions to a new protocol. So just because Bitcoin fails doesn't mean the idea of securing truth in this way fails. There are still other ways that that can arise. Um, with that said, we are not arguing that Bitcoin is infallible. We are arguing that it is the best technology yet invented for recording human history. And if the concept of cryptocurrency can endure past the invention of quantum decryption, we will likely think of the beginning of cryptographically verifiable history as on par with the beginning of written history millennia ago. Future societies may think of the year 2022 AD as the year 13 AS, with after Satoshi as the new Anno Domini and the block clock as the, U, as the new universal time. And by block clock, it's just a clock that's tracking every single block since the first block. Um, that's funny. And I actually I really it was think... just, a, just a clock that was a block of wood. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's just a, just a block clock. It's, the um, <laughs> it's just a piece of wood with a clock in it. Um, so, so what I thought, what I found really interesting about this though, is um, there's a YouTube channel that I follow. I find really interesting called Kulzgesat, uh, which is a uh, diving into all kinds of concepts like um, um, metaphysics and um, chemistry and a bunch of different things. But what I really like about the way that they uh, talk about their their history is they see human history as starting 20,000 years ago. And so they release a calendar every year of the year, you know, 20,023, right, for this year, for example. And the reason that that's important is because if we track history as starting at the beginning of humanity, it already shifts the perspective as to we're seeing this as our history as humans, rather than we are seeing this through the lens of Jesus Christ or whatever it is, BC, BC. Um, and so like, um, it just changes the perspective of uh, we're all on the same team. We're all part of the same planet. We're all the same species. And we're perceiving this as our communal history rather than, oh, that's just Western forms of history, or that's China's form of history, right? And so it just, it, it puts us all on the same playing field um, and on the same team. And the clock, right, the Bitcoin block clock um, is a similar idea where we're tracking verifiable history from this point forward. And so that's also just changing our, our perspective to say, if we're looking at, um, history from this point as this is where truth started, um, that also gives us some point of consensus and um, gives a more equal playing field for every country looking at it to say, well, I'm going to reject or discount um, the history that came before that time more than the history that came after that time, just because uh, that's more, that has more consensus around it. Yeah, I think the really interesting thing is, okay, what other use cases can we see um, from the technology? Like what other chains can we see that are doing this in a way that's like meaningful and also accessible to all? Um, right. And I think that that's what this conversation inspires, which I think is cool because it was super technical. 
this part and yeah um and to pretend that we understand everything like why why are we doing this it's also because we want to learn at the same time <laughs> exactly and you know um, we want to hear your thoughts too right so if you guys have better ways of explaining this stuff which i'm sure you will you know please put it in the comments interact with others um use peers as a way to to get through this thick technical jargon but it does but i think it, it lays down in in the perspective of what we're trying to to achieve with um the read through of, of um of the network state book manifesto we're hoping i mean it, putting that technology in the scope of how it lays into like actually being applied for history is is, is very cool and it you can see the way that he frames it it's already it it opens itself up to it and i think we're also getting an insight on the author and his perspective of um history in general which is actually i which i've now come a little bit more around to since since our first episode actually too so the brainwashing has begun <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i mean it, it it is really well thought out um and to go from such a deep understanding of the technical side to then extrapolate that into the simplest way possible for um why this applies to the bigger picture is impressive so moving on to the next uh parts here right we're going to cover the bitcoin blockchain can record non-bitcoin events and then we're going to cover blockchains can record the history of an economy and society uh, and then we're going to like sum it all up with how crypto history is cryptographically verifiable macro history. So how crypto history can be our new version of history that is verifiable. Um, if you like this episode, please like, comment, subscribe, share, um, and uh, sign up for the newsletter. And we'll see you in the next one. Mm -hmm.